Happy Wednesday, everybody. We are recording this episode in early June, and it's not going live until September. And we really, really hope that our future selves live in a much happier world than what we're living in right now. You guys, 2020 started off so crazy. Am I right? Seriously, though, we... We are in the middle of a lot of hard things, and we hope that by the time this episode is published in September that things have chilled out a bit and that we all love each other and are healthy and happy. But today we're going to do something really fun. Megan and I are going to share some things that we have learned from writing blogs. So we've been working with a professional team that's been helping us boost our blog content and optimize it for search engines to make Google happy and bring all the people to us. But because of those things, we have actually been rewriting a lot of our blogs that we had before just to better optimize them and, and bring more content to you. And so today, Megan and I are going to talk about the things that we have learned by digging deeper into our blog content while we rewrite them. And we are going to share those things with you because there's some really good stuff in there. Like there's some, we were just talking today about some things. I just wrapped up a blog today and we are really, really kind of excited about the new stuff that we can learn to better help you and our community. So before we do that, Megan has a review of the week for us. So this is from K. Let's see. It says K. Chick Chester, I believe, <laughs> or Ch K. Chick Hester, <laughs> seventy-four. It's um, titled "Amazing," and it says, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." This podcast was my saving grace. Could not have done my VBAC without these ladies and their stories of encouragement and wisdom. A must listen to anyone wanting to tolak. Keep up the great work. I thoroughly enjoyed listening. Ladies, we can do hard things. And I couldn't agree with her more. You guys, you can do you hard things. You really can. Sometimes in our minds, it becomes challenging to believe that. But you can. I have a client right now. She is due next month. And um, she is kind of in that end stage where she's vulnerable and people are questioning and doubting the choices that she's making. And it's really causing her to question and doubt. And it makes me sad because she has gone above and beyond. She's taken our course. She's done research. She's worked as a doula even herself and seen a lot of births. And she's she's really ready in a lot of other ways. So it's, she's just got to work through the emotions part um, and the mental block part. But you guys, you can. You can do hard things. So believe in yourself and follow your heart and go for it. Do what's best for you. Amen to that. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. 
The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Birth workers, listen up. Do you want to increase your knowledge of birth after cesarean? We created our advanced VBAC doula certification program just for you. It is the most comprehensive VBAC doula training in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. This course is designed for birth workers who want to take their VBAC education to the next level so you can support parents who have had a cesarean in the most effective ways. We have created a complete system, a step-by-step roadmap that shows exactly what you need to know in order to support parents birthing after cesarean. Head on over to thevbacklink.com to find out more information and sign up today. That's thevbacklink.com. See you there. You know, it's funny, Megan, while you were talking before the intro about your client. I have a, I'm currently on call right now for a first-time mom that's like that she's 40 weeks and five days now, and she is just waiting patiently, but you know how it is as a first-time mom. I guess during any pregnancy, really, like it's the end, and you're tired, and you're swollen, and you just don't know when this baby's going to come and you want the baby to come, but you also want things to go as smoothly as possible. And you are just kind of in this waiting time, this waiting space. And every day she texts me with all sorts of questions and all sorts of, do I need to know this? What about this? I just heard that today. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I just wish I could just look her dead in the eyes and just say, hey, listen to me. You have this power in you. You are going to do this and this will happen for you one way or another. And have her like believe me because you know how it is as a first time mom or even preparing for VBAC. Like you just don't know if you can do it. Like there's that question mark, right? In your mind. So I just... I've, you know, we've both been around birth so much. We, we've seen the power, we've seen the strength, and we know that it exists inside of you. And so just send that out to you right now for, with love from Julie and Megan, the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's hard. First time, second time, third time, fifth time. You know, it's just different and you just never know. You never know. So it's hard. It's mm-hmm. super hard. Um, hey, so we, like Julie said, we've been writing blogs. We've been updating blogs. We're really excited to um, be bringing these to you. The team that we're working with, they're like, okay, you've got these blogs and they're awesome, but let's make them even better. <laughs> so we're like, let's challenge accepted. Let's do it. And Julie and I really have been enjoying um, writing these for you and um, even learning along the way. Do you hear my dog in the background? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he wants me to pet him and I'm like, no, dude. Anyway, yeah, so we're really excited to be writing these and we're, we're sending them out weekly. So if you haven't subscribed to our mailing address yet, be sure to. You can at thevbacklink.com. So you'll be notified when we have a new blog um, and then definitely check them out because they're, they're fun. They're fun. Um, we've got some blogs. Uh, Julie just wrote one not long ago and it's, it's on cervical scarring and then we've got one on CPD. 
or small pelvis and um, laboring at home and just so many fun things. So yeah. Which one do you want to talk about first, Julie? I've, I'm, I'm just scrolling through on my phone right now. Just for everyone to know, you can find all the blogs we're referencing at the vbacklink.com slash blog. And we're, so we're not going to just go through and tell you where to find each one because they're just all right there. <laughs> but I, I want to go way back to the very first rewrite I did because I think it's important to, to clarify this specific part of information. And it's the um, length between pregnancy, C-section to VBAC. And we initially wrote this blog because we would get asked all the time. We still do get asked all the time. Now we have a blog to send them. <laughs> How often do you have to wait from the time you have your C-section to the time that you can get pregnant again without there being any increased risk due to the pregnancy spacings? The hard thing about knowing when to get pregnant after a cesarean is that there, there's not a lot or there's not any really current studies on it. They're all relatively 10-ish years old. So we've got to pull data from all of the studies in order to get a kind of conclusion. You know, our best educated guesses really is what it is. And there are three studies. I guess the Mayo Clinic did some meta-analysis as well. So technically four on increased risk of short interval pregnancies between C-section and vaginal birth. So the first study and the only study that we had referenced in the original blog was from Staminillo et al. in 2007. And that study suggests or shows that the interval between pregnancies between cesarean and VBAC, as long as it's greater than six months, there's no increased risk for rupture. Now, within that six-month window, the risk of rupture went up to 2.66% from roughly half of a percent. And so it, the risk is almost five times as much. So that's something to consider with your provider and family planning and talking about it, all of these things are really personal decisions and are really dependent on finding a provider that supports your choices. But that's the first study, and that's the only one we used to say, right? And so since then, we have found two more studies that show conflicting information. In fact, all three studies have different conclusions on the appropriate amount of time. So the second study uh, is in 2010 um, by Bold, and it shows that the rupture rate doubles with birth intervals of less than 24 months. So if there's two years between births, your chance of uterine rupture is double. That's what this study shows. But then there's another study, uh, SHIP et al. in 2001, found that anything less than 18 months between births, which is nine months between pregnancies, shows for an increased risk of rupture. And so really all of these studies say the conclusion from all of them is after six months, there's no risk. After nine months, there's no risk. And the other one is after 20, 18 to 24 months, there's no risk. And so really nobody really knows I, I just, this, the participants in these studies were relatively low, uh, less than a few thousand total for between all of them. And so I would say that there are studies that suggest that waiting 
18 to 24 months between births may decrease your chances of uterine rupture. May there with the asterisk, okay? Because the one study showed six months. The other one showed nine months. The other one showed 18 months. And every provider you're going to find is going to have a different recommendation for you. So if you listen to our podcast, go through past episodes, there we have as short as three months between pregnancies and many, is, many, many years between pregnancies. I think seven years was, we had one feedback that was seven years after her C-section. And so it's really hard and something you've got to talk to your provider about. And also I think it depends on how traumatic your cesarean might have been as well. Like what is your incision type? Like how were there any complications related to it and things like that to consider. So the timeline that is right for you should be based on your specific circumstances. And again, with a supportive provider that is honest and truthful with you. How about that one, Megan? <laughs> uh, yes, I love it. I love it. That's a big question that we get all the time. So I'm glad that you addressed that first. Let's see. So another blog I, um, I kind of rewrote was your pelvis is not too small. And we talk about the overuse of C the CPD diagnosis. So for anyone who does not know what CPD is, it's cephalopelvic disproportion. And that's pretty much a diagnosis saying that your pelvis had some imperfections and wasn't big enough to or capable to allow your baby through and out of the vagina, essentially. And a lot of people get this diagnosis but are never even told that their pelvis was too small, which was kind of crazy to me to start hearing. I mean, I knew it, but then like we started hearing all these stories and we have all these people writing us right on our Instagram and on Facebook and stuff. And guys, it's so common, so common. Providers truly say CPD more than, more than I think probably is true. Um, because the matter, a matter of fact is, is it's just not, it's rare. It's not very common because, it, because it's really hard to diagnose. I can't just look at Julie and say, now that girl's pelvis is just too small. <laughs> never get a baby out of that pelvis, right? I can't just look at her and say that. It's just so hard to diagnose. And it's really hard to determine if, if they have CPD even during pushing like really because there's a lot of providers julie i don't know if you've had this with clients like that might be pushing for a while and i've had a provider say like you know your pelvis just not might be big enough like it just it might be too small to deliver this baby or your baby is just too big and anyway it it's just so crazy so here are some diag like a provider may diagnose cpd if the following occurs. So a big baby. And that's a diagnosis of a big baby. So, I mean, I have clients and family members who have been diagnosed with a big baby via ultrasound or even by the look of them, or maybe they're measuring like a head. They're like, they're 38 weeks, but they're actually measuring like 40 weeks, things like that. That is like a diagnosis of a large baby. And what is a large baby? 
that is a question. And we also have a blog on that of what is a large baby? Because sometimes people hear like eight pounds and they're like, oh, that's a huge baby. But it's actually not. I believe, I'm trying to remember actually, it's like nine pounds, four, nine pounds, 14 ounces, nine pounds, 13 11. ounces. 11. That, oh, yep, our blog does say 14. I just found it. Um, so we might need to change that. But Oh my um, gosh, was I wrong? Maybe I, I was know. wrong. No, but oh, so that's a double fact check that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a mac. I mean, still nine pounds, 11 to 14 ounces. Like that's, that's considered a larger baby, a macrosomia mm-hmm. baby. So if you've got an eight pound baby, you're technically being diagnosed with, uh, diagnosed with a big baby and that's not technically a big baby. So, um, just being aware of that. I had, I did have a client that was told that her baby is probably 10 pounds or 10 to 12 pounds, probably likely on the upper scale of the closer to 12 and suggested a C-section and her baby was seven pounds. So it's just hard. It's just hard. So previous diagnosis of a small pelvis, someone like me, right? So my first C-section, they said CPD in the chart. And so I might get that diagnosis again because I've had that previous diagnosis. And so just being aware, and we, we really suggest getting your op reports if you haven't already. And if you're a first time parent listening, just be aware of these things. So diabetes patients sometimes will be given the diagnosis of CPD. And usually that comes with a larger baby, right? And so they kind of go together. Failure to progress in labor, meaning exactly what happened with my first and my second, right? I didn't dilate all the way because I didn't, wasn't given enough time. The cervix didn't make it to complete And so sometimes they believe that if failure to progress happens, that CPD may be a factor of that because the baby wasn't allowed into the pelvis enough to dilate the cervix or failure to descend where the baby just wasn't coming down. But a lot of the time, in fact, like the majority of the time, it's not the fact that the pelvis is actually too small. It's that we've got a baby in a poor position So yeah, like, don't be scared to ask questions. Don't be scared to say, hey, check my baby's position. Are you trained to check my baby's position? If not, can we get someone that is, can we use an ultrasound? Can we figure this out? Because, you know, there's C-sections that are happening and we can just move a baby or turn over and rotate or use a peanut ball. So genetics, if a birthing parent or mother has been told that their pelvis was too small. So my mom... She was told her pelvis was too small. With me, she pushed for a couple hours. I guarantee I was just probably in a poor position because my mom is similar to me. Like, she's not a small-hipped person. Yeah, so she was given that diagnosis. And so the same doctor who was delivering, who delivered me, was delivering my first baby, said, you know, yeah, it could be genetics. Your pelvis just might be too small like your mom's. So, yeah, and then um, if a person is small, like petite or short, I've seen really small women give birth. So if you are small, don't feel like you can't give birth. I have a neighbor behind me and he, he tells me his wife had C-sections and uh, with the first one. And he's like, you know, I just kept telling the provider, like, there's no way she can deliver this baby. Like, she's just so small. And I'm like, oh, there are small people that deliver babies too, like vaginally. So anyway, those are one of... Those are some of the um, 
ways that providers diagnose. And unfortunately, there really are, it's just overused. It's overused. If you have been diagnosed with it, is it possible? You know, is it possible for you to have a VBAC if you have been diagnosed with CPD? I want to say yes, it's totally possible. You just need to kind of research and figure things out for yourself, but know that, you know, the chance of your pelvis being too small is, is rare. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes there's just not a reason and that's the they have thing. to write yeah. something down. They Failure do. to progress because of why. And yeah. we're going to actually talk a little bit about that coming up <laughs> with my current mm-hmm. vlog rewrite. But yeah, I think sometimes they just don't know why. And it just gets thrown thrown down as a reason. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, with you, you weren't even told that. And then it, then it was in your report. So I'm pretty sure that provider just writes that down for everybody. Like, I really do. It might. <laughs> might. I just. Oh, man. It's hard. It's super hard. It is hard. Okay, let's see. What are their. So um, I'm going to talk about um uh, the rewrite i did of our blog about transverse babies oh yeah Mm -hmm. because there's not really anything new that i learned while writing it necessarily but there are things that i just hadn't thought a lot about if that makes sense and so it's this is going to be really really short comment but one of the so obviously we know transverse if lie for those who don't know is where baby's lying sideways. So the head is on one side of your belly and the bum is on the other side of the belly. It's not up and down. And so some of the things that can impact that, well, actually I did not know this, but when you have, when you have a higher risk of having a transverse baby on your second or third or fourth pregnancies, because your uterus and abdominal muscles can remain stretched out to create more room for the baby sooner in the pregnancy and it's easier for them to remain that way and I hadn't ever really thought of that like it's not something I was really aware of but another thing that I had not thought of before is we know that babies that are transverse cannot be born vaginally it has to be a c-section because there's a risks I mean baby can't come out like your baby can't come out like back first it's just physiologically impossible, right? There are things that you can do to help turn baby. A lot of the same things that you would do if your baby was breech are recommended for transverse baby, including the external cephalic version or ECV, or sometimes it's just known as a version where they manually turn the baby from the outside. But the thing that I didn't realize um, that is a complication of transverse babies is we know that like cord prolapse is a higher risk for transverse baby, which means the cords the cord comes out before the baby does. And I knew that like a prolapsed arm where like the hand and arm comes out first, but the baby's head's not next to it. So that's different than a nuchal hand. But another thing is the shoulder, an impacted shoulder, like the shoulder can be pressing against the cervix, which can cause long-term damage to the baby's shoulder. And that's something I hadn't thought about. I also know that if your baby's lying transverse, you might get pressured for a cesarean early on, earlier on than they would normally recommend because if your water breaks 
while your baby is transverse, then the cord, the arm, or the shoulder could come out first. And then when that happens, minutes, seconds matter to in order to get the baby out without any long-term injury or loss. So that would be the thing is I never really thought about the shoulder, like an impacted shoulder coming, like pushing against and coming through the cervix first. That's that's it's kind of scary. To me. Yeah, I have some pictures of it in our blog. So if you want to see what that looks like, head on over to that particular blog. Good things to point out. Okay, so another. I, this actually is in a rewrite. I just wrote it. <laughs> it's a new blog to the VBAC Link blog, and it is Libring at home and how to stay confident and safe. So a lot of people. A lot of people, they want to labor at home as long as possible. And I wouldn't even say this is VBAC specific. This is just kind of like all of my first time parents that we support, like that's one of their goals, right? Is they, they want to be at home as long as possible where they're comfortable, where they're free to do whatever they want, where their bed and their food and everything is there. And so that's just a really common thing. But with VBAC, we thought it would be a really good idea to write a blog because VBAC has concerns for providers with people laboring at home. That's why it has such a hard take for a lot of providers for those who actually want to deliver their babies at home, to, to birth their babies at home. And so we wrote this blog and talked about why. Why labor at home? What are some reasons? One of the very first reasons that people want to labor at home is the comfort. Um, maybe they want an unmedicated birth. They want to avoid the interventions. Maybe they want to avoid constant fetal monitoring. Now with VBAC, the providers really, really like and prefer and usually don't just recommend they say it's required to have constant fetal monitoring. This is because they want to monitor this baby, see what they're doing, because fetal heart tones can be one of the very first signs of things like rupture. And so they want to really monitor these babies. So it's really annoying to have something on your belly all the time. Sometimes it's those big bands. Sometimes it's just that big toco monitor. So if we're home, we don't have to deal with that. We can move. We can take a bath. We can do those things. And so a lot of people really just want to labor at home until full-blown labor is going so they can just not have a lot of monitoring when they get there. At the same time, it's really important to make sure that your baby is okay, right? And know the signs and symptoms of ruptures. So we really encourage you to know those signs and to follow your intuition and see if, you know, just tune in and see if you feel like something's not right. A lot of other people, they just want to eat. That's like really one of those big things. And Julie, I think, well, Nick, Nick ate pizza. You didn't, right? Or did you eat pizza um, during Pizza and birth go together. So <laughs> after my, after all three of my home births, we had pizza. But my 
my youngest was born at 6 30 in the morning so we just had pizza for dinner that night but yeah Um, my third like my husband was eating pizza while I was in labor and I did I just wasn't hungry like when when you get to that intense part of labor you're not you don't feel like you're really gonna be hungry but like in the early parts of labor especially like when you're being induced or labor is just starting you're gonna want to eat so that you have energy but let me tell you as soon as my baby was born I was like I need some pizza I don't even remember what I ate after my labor but I do remember it was long and I was crashing I was totally crashing and so my team they were like okay you've got to eat something and I know that if I wasn't there I wouldn't have eaten the whole 42 hours plus right and so I am so grateful for that or another reason why people really like to labor at home is because they actually have the fear of the hospital in general. Hospitals can feel scary. They can feel cold. They can smell differently. And if you've received, or if you have trauma from previous birth experiences, or maybe not even birth, but just previous experiences in your life, hospitals may be a trigger. And so really laboring at home and staying away from that place that really doesn't make you feel comfortable, that can be a reason why people like to labor at home. The one of the interesting things that I kind of touched on though during this blog was I have seen this, Julie, tell me if you've seen this, where people actually want to labor at home and they, 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 they desire that. And maybe it's because everybody kind of is like, yeah, I want to labor at home as long as possible. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes down to it, something is off. Something's off. And then, and then they don't progress. And, and they long. don't progress. And it's long. And, and then they go to the happening. hospital. And then and immediately things pick up. Yes. Have you I knew right seen where this. you were going with that. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it where, where I'm like, okay, like maybe we should just go and assess. And then the second we get there, it's like, oh, like they're comfortable and labor progresses. So really tune into that and kind of see what's going on. But a way to do things safe and prepare is hire a birth team, hire a doula, hire someone provider-wise that you can communicate with. I think this is a really big thing. I know providers don't just openly give their cell phone numbers away, but if there's any way that they can kind of say, hey, give me a heads up or if you have questions, feel free to email me here or use your messenger thing or whatever it may be. That could really bring a lot of comfort. And yeah, so take a birth class, use your technology. There's apps, really check your contractions when they're starting to become strong and consistent and sometimes feeling unbearable because that might be time to go to the hospital and and not stay home. Resting, moving, staying hydrated and fueled, have a birth plan, which we also will have a blog on here soon. I'm writing it this week. So by the time this comes out, like I said, learn the signs and really just getting ready, getting ready and having a plan. So when are you going to go to the hospital? Prepare for that. Like, do you want to go during transition? Do you want to have a stop and drop, meaning you just show up and push a baby out? Are you wanting to go early? Really talk Car about baby. that with your team. Car, yeah, that's your <laughs> dream. Talk about that with your team. Really, though, talk about that with your team. And like I said, figure out the signs. Those, that's one of the biggest things to really labor at home safely is know the signs of rupture or something being wrong. Julie, what other blog do you want to talk about? 
So I have two more, one super quick and then one's a little bit longer. But before I do that, when you were talking about some people just don't want to be strapped to the monitors all the time, so that's why they were at home as long as possible. And you said people, it's just uncomfortable. Nobody wants to have stuff on their on their belly. And I right. was thinking what I thought in my head was, do you know what I don't like having on my belly? Jeans. I just hate jeans. jeans? <laughs> yes, I do. I hate them. In fact, right now I'm wearing maternity pants. I, my, my youngest is two years and four months old, and I literally have maternity leggings on right now. <laughs> like I hate stuff on my belly. Is that, I'm probably a little bit of an oddball, but you know what? It is what it is. I hate the buttons like right there. I just don't. And maybe it's because I was pretty much pregnant half the time for like five years straight. I don't know. I don't know. It's just uncomfortable. And when you've got a pregnant belly, the belly's sensitive in general. It's Mm -hmm. stretched. It's uncomfortable. And then you've got this like hard monitor just like pushing on your belly. It's, it's just really not comfortable. So yeah. And I think it can kind of be a mental game too, because especially if baby's moving around a lot or descending and they have to keep adjusting the monitors. I mean, it can just be really, it can really be disruptive of the physiologic birth process because then when you're mentally like having to check out of labor land to like pay attention or try and ignore the nurse coming to check your monitor, then it's hard to keep your mind right. It's hard to keep your mind in the game, especially if they're like, oh, we're really having a hard time finding baby's heart rate, if your mind goes like, well, is my baby okay? That raises your stress hormones, which decreases your levels of oxytocin, which help get the baby out. And so, I mean, we can just kind of go around in a circle, I guess, all day for why uh, some people like to labor at home as long as possible. But I like your blog. I I read through it and I think it's really good. Um, So the one I'm going to touch on really briefly is we rewrote our blog on healing from birth trauma. Now, in our parents course and our doula certification program, one of the first things we address is fear and learning how to calm your mind and how to process your last birth. Because most parents that have a C-section have some level of, of trauma or letdown associated with that experience, especially when it's unplanned. So, we wrote this blog about birth trauma. And then after we wrote the blog, we went to the evidence-based birth conference in Kentucky in the fall of 2019. And there was a lot of birth trauma resources there and it blew my mind. I thought I knew about birth trauma, but man, I, there are so many resources available that I was not aware of. And so i just want to let you know that Going through and reading that blog just about how to heal from birth trauma, there are so many new resources there for you. There's online resources. There's referrals to find providers close to you. And it's really, really important to work through any emotions, even if you don't think you have any, related to your past birth so that they don't come up while you're in labor. I want to, do want to read one quote here on the blog. PTSD, birth PTSD is something that we're still kind of learning about and figuring out, but it's official diagnosis now, post-traumatic stress disorder due to events that happened during birth. And I want to read this quote that was in psychology today from Bessel van der Kolk, MD, says one of the leading research, or he's one of the leading researchers in post-traumatic stress disorder. He says, trauma is not the story of something that happened back then. It's the current imprint of that pain, horror, and fear living inside people. 
This can be translated to trauma living inside our bodies and experiencing it as if it were happening right now. Your body response to PTSD is responding as if the trauma is happening again and again and again in your mind. And that's a really hard place to be in, especially when you're trying to have a baby. So that's an updated blog for you. So the one I just got finished writing, we got the edits back today, actually, is on cervical scar tissue. Now, a lot of people know that one of the most common complications from cesarean delivery is dense adhesions or excessive scar tissue that can attach from the uterine wall to the abdominal wall or to the bowels or even to the bladder. And if that scar tissue, you know, that scar tissue, because it's in our abdomen, it doesn't get as much mobility as a scar in the arm or wrist or fingers or legs would get because it just doesn't move as much. And so it's not uncommon for that scar tissue to remain tight. And when in scar tissue can actually keep growing for up to two years. And so it can be a problem when you have those adhesions and you don't know it and they're tight and they're pulling your organs certain ways towards each other that are not natural way. It can cause a lot of pain in the back, in the pelvic floor, incontinence. It can cause pain during intercourse and severe pain during menstruation. Those are all things that dense adhesions can cause. And they and- can happen for a long time. My, my mm-hmm. C-section, my last C-section baby is six years old. And my, I have a dense adhesion to my bladder and it, it pulls and pinches in my back. And I still, I have back issues. Mm-hmm. And well, it's you from know, that. Yeah. Well, do you know what the thing is, is that I'm pretty sure I have some adhesions as well. Oh, I, they, the. I'm pretty sure yeah, everybody I'm has sure. scar tissue. You do. You just do. Because you can't have a wound exactly healed so without ad- scar tissue. Yeah. And then you have adhesions as they adhere and then they pull away and then mm-hmm. there's an adhesion there and then they may adhere in uh-huh. a different spot and then they pull away and then uh-huh. there you go again. You've got another one. Yeah. But something I hadn't thought of, like really, you know how like you know something, but then when you break it down even farther, you have like this aha moment. I had an aha moment when I was writing this blog and scar tissue in the cervix. Okay. Now we know that the cervix is part of the uterus. It's like the bottom part, the opening of the uterus. And sometimes your C-section scars can cut into the cervix part because it just depends on where you're, where you are at dilation wise when you have your C-section. Cause if you were fully dilated, it's a lot harder to identify where the cervix ends. Does that make sense? Kind of Megan? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that can be one reason why um, you have scar tissue in your cervix. Okay. But guess what else? you don't have to have had a previous cesarean for there to be scar tissue on your cervix. Guess what? Okay, like get ready to be mind blown like three times, guys. There are multiple reasons that can cause scar tissue to be on your cervix. First of all, if you've had an IUD longer than a year, your cervix can have scar tissue. If you've used plan B birth control. I just had one for five. Yeah, well... (laughs) Better get that taken care of. Oh, it's but no, really though. I did too. I had an IUD and I hated it, and (laughs) for other reasons. But Plan B using Plan B birth control, the like the morning after pill, that can cause 
scar tissue in your cervix. Another thing is a traumatic vaginal delivery or a vaginal delivery that progressed very quickly. As a baby moves through the cervix, it can cause the little micro tears in the cervix that cause scar tissue, especially if you have a cervical tear when your baby's born, sometimes there's first or second degree tears directly on the cervix that need to be stitched up. That's definitely a reason for cervical scar tissue, but also chronic inflammation like PID because the, as the muscles inflame and, and they, they get inflamed and then they re reduce and then they inflame, they swell and get bigger, all of that movement and swelling can cause, again, micro tears in the pelvic floor and in the cervix. But guess what cervical scar tissue looks like in labor? This is where my mind was blown, guys. When you, as doulas, listen, like doulas, I'm sure as soon as I say this, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that is so right. Because you have clients or parents or maybe even yourself where you are laboring hard and then you, your intensity builds up and the contractions are getting stronger. And maybe even you, f you make little grunting sounds like your body's trying to push. And then a nurse comes in and does a cervical check. And she's like, oh, well, you're still three centimeters. And like everybody in the room is like, oh, man, like she's working so hard. How is she only three centimeters dilated? And then sometimes, you know, they decide to start Pitocin or get an epidural to relax or whatever. But then miraculously, at some point, things change and baby's born super fast. Like she'll go from three to baby in like 30 or 45 minutes. And you're like, wow, that was so crazy. You were stalled at three for hours. And then all of a sudden the baby came super fast. Guess what? A big cause of that is, aside from positional issues of the baby, Cervical scar tissue, keeping the cervix from opening in a normal way, for lack of a better word. And then once that scar tissue is released, the cervix is wide open and the baby can freely move through it. What? I'm like going back through and I'm like, yep, this birth, that birth, that birth. I can see this birth. And this is the thing. There's no way to tell if you have cervical scar tissue before your cervix starts to efface because that's what only when it will become apparent. Now you can go in surgically to see if you have cervical scar tissue, but if you do that like a laparoscopy, a surgical procedure, guess what that's going to do? It's going to leave more scarring. <laughs> it's kind of like really kind of sucks because yeah. you can't know, but there are yeah. some signs like difficulties getting pregnant, recurrent miscarriages, secondary infertility problems, especially if you've had a vaginal birth or a C-section before, and irregular menstrual cycles, heavy bleeding, light bleeding, painful bleeding, or passing blood clots. Sometimes um, severe form of cervical scarring can just impede blood flow a lot to where your period is so light, but you're cramping so heavily. And those are some signs that like some indirect ways of kind of having a hint. But like if you are laboring hard and your cervix is not very open, then patience is going to help. As long as mom and baby are, are healthy and happy, patience is all you need. You need time. You need to move in different positions to help that ba the baby's head and your pelvis break apart that scar tissue. And you need a provider that's willing to 
let you do that, willing to let you sit at a floor for six to eight hours without interfering, or even better, a provider that knows how to identify and massage through cervical scar tissue because you can massage through it and to get the cervix to release and open. But not a lot of providers will recognize that unless you've had a LEAP procedure, which is like if you had an abnormal pap smear and they want to go in and take a little sample off of your cervix to do to go to pathology that's called the leap procedure and if you haven't had a leap procedure most providers don't even acknowledge that there's a possibility of cervical scarring so my mind blown from that yeah, lots of lots of amazing information right there and yeah. something that not a lot of people talk about and um yeah like it's important and it can really change the way things pan out it, it really can. can. And yeah. now I'm thinking how many unnecessary cesareans or how many cesareans that were failure to progress are actually Was related to, to scar tissue, cervical scar yeah. tissue. Even yeah. first-time moms can have it. Yeah. Because IUD, plan B, um, any kind of like trauma or sexual trauma and abuse actually can cause that scarring as well. I mean, that's really... That's a really like heavy thing to kind of end the episode with. I probably should not have said that at the very end of the episode. But guess what? Between this time, early June and mid-September, we have blogs written that we don't even know we're going to be writing yet. So yeah. <laughs> head on over to the vbacklink.com slash blog and get ready, dig in, dive in, soak it all up, get your mind blown. And guess what? If you want to be mind blown even more, check out our Advanced VBAC Doula Certification course and our How to VBAC, the ultimate prep course for parents. We have a robust VBAC course for both parents and birth workers that you can also find on our website, thevbaclink.com. Interested in sharing your VBAC? Head over to thevbaclink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.